as we come now before the very word of God. If you'd like to read with me, I'll be in John chapter 6 this morning. We'll read together here from, from John 6. And even though we've just sung a prayer, I suppose, in a sense, would you please now uh, pray with me, Lord? You know your own, and your own know you. Lord, now as your people, would you help us to abide with you and to abide with your word? Lord, would you give us ears to hear these things, to listen uh, intently and eagerly even. Open our eyes to see by your spirit. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is John chapter 6. We'll begin here uh, in verse 47, which I know is jumping in in the middle of the interaction here with Jesus and the crowd. This is a very long uh, section, even much longer than the section we're taking up, but we'll do our best here. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 47, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of God. Now, this interaction revolves around the first of the seven famous I am statements that we hear from Jesus in the book of John. So seven times Jesus makes statements about who he is, specifically in the frame of I am such. So I am the bread of life. That's the one we see here. He'll eventually say, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. All of these I am statements of Jesus are reminders that the book that we're reading now is a gospel, which means that it is good news, not good advice. A gospel is not mainly a life guide telling us how to live. It is not mainly an instruction manual of do's and don'ts. We know, of course, of course, Jesus cares very much about how we live, how we go about our lives in a holy way. He died on the cross not only to save us from sin, but to transform us in his image. So Jesus cares about how we live, but at the center, Jesus is drawing us to himself by faith. So then the gospel is proclaiming news, good news, about who he is, thus the I am's. He wants us to know who he is so that we will eventually come to trust and to follow him. If we were to isolate all the I am statements by themselves, you know, uh, put them in a sermon, a little list like I've just done, or you know, print them on a poster or on a bookmark, I guess, I suppose we could do those things. The I am statements by themselves sound, sound pretty sharp and, and powerful, and they are those things. But if we put the statements back into their context as Jesus has, has said them in real life, they get a little bit more complicated. Uh, so by the end of this scene, where we hear this first I am, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. As a result of this, many people who had followed Jesus called it quits. They were done with him after this. They turned back, and they no longer walked with Jesus. And so as that is happening, as people are literally walking away from him, this is where we hear Jesus ask the big question that we're focusing on today, 
we see it in verse 67. The question he asks to the 12 is, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go? Do you really want to be here? Do you really want to follow me? This is a pointed question because for many people, the answer to that question was no. In their mind, Jesus had crossed a line, and so they were not going to follow him anymore. The reason for not following him, we see at least in part, is in verse 60, that many people called Jesus' teaching here about the bread, being the bread of life, they called his teaching a, quote, hard saying. This is a hard saying, they say. And when they talk about it being hard, this is less in the way that, like, physics is hard and, and more in the way that politics is often hard. So it's not as much about it being difficult to understand, it's that it's difficult to swallow, that many of these things rubbed against their grain. They were offensive things that he had said. And it's worth pointing out that Jesus is not trying to be offensive here, nor is he trying to avoid taking offense. He's not trying to be offensive. He's not one of those, you know, shock jocks that just wants to be edgy and is saying things that will make you go gasp and clutch your pearls. He's not just trying to get a rise out of people. Nor is he a people pleaser, one that will just tell people what they want to hear, who doesn't want to say the hard things so you can get them to like you. You know, many of us tend toward one of those or the other. Usually there is sin on the ends of those things. Sometimes we even hear preachers preach as either a shock jock or a people pleaser, and that is sin too. But Jesus is not like either one of those. Jesus here, while offensive, is just telling the truth. And sometimes the truth feels like a warm blanket. And just want to wrap yourself in it. And other times, the truth feels more like an itchy blanket. This is an itchy blanket moment. So Jesus here is not just handing out bookmarks with the I am statements about him. He's giving here an extended teaching. We didn't even hear the all of it. You can read in the section before at home if you wish. But he's giving an extended teaching about himself as the very bread of life. And in this teaching, he says multiple times, feed on me. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Classic Jesus, right? This, this doesn't sound like something Jesus should say. It sounds like something that's more out of like a Halloween movie or, or something. It is, it is unlikely that anyone who was, uh, who was here in this moment, who heard him say this for the first time, anyone without much sense at, with much sense at all would have thought that Jesus literally meant this. That he held out his arm and said, feed on me. You know, it's not like Jesus is teaching, you know, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Also, I'm pro-cannibalism. You know, I, I mean, we get that this is nonsense in some ways. Jesus has taught lots of hard and even controversial things, but to eat human flesh is not one of those things. And so anyone that makes that sort of accusation against Jesus is just giving out a silly little red herring, and they're missing the point. What Jesus is saying here is clearly, clearly a metaphor, not only for us, but for those who are listening. What made them grumble was not that they thought he was promoting cannibalism. What made the people grumble is when they asked, what does he mean by this metaphor? What is Jesus really saying to us when he says, feed on me the bread of life? Later readers of this gospel, like us and many who have come before us, later readers think that Jesus may have meant to foreshadow the Lord's Supper. Um, There are some obvious similarities here with that. Of course, he says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood and the Lord's Supper in some sense. But there are also some important differences here with the Lord's Supper. Uh, To be honest, I'm not really sure if Jesus intended to foreshadow the, the Lord's Supper or not here. In fact, from my study, I tend to lean away that this is not really pointing toward the Lord's Supper. I don't really know. At least if Jesus intended to say that, he doesn't make it explicit. Neither he nor John, the author, says that this is about the Lord's Supper. What he does say, what we can be certain of here, is that the bread of life image, the bread of life metaphor, is connected to manna bread. You can see it in, uh, let's find it, 40... 48 and 49, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So what's the connection there? What's the connection between Jesus as the bread and the manna bread in the wilderness? We know in the days immediately after Exodus, when we preached through the opener of Exodus, we stopped before we arrived here, but after the people had left slavery in Egypt, they were in the desert and they had no food. And so the people cried out to the Lord. They, uh, well, even more than just crying out, they grumbled and complained to the Lord. Uh, But the Lord, out of his mercy, provided food for them in meat and in manna or bread. And so we see this scene in Exodus chapter 16, just a few verses here, verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? for they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Here, this bread, this manna, has come directly from God. It is bread given directly from the Lord, even more specifically from from heaven. He says back in verse 4 in Exodus 16, he says, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. So in John, 
this is the point that is most offensive to those who are with Jesus. Jesus is saying, in a sense, that like the manna, he has come from the Lord. He has come from heaven. And that rubbed them the wrong way. Partly because this whole interaction occurs in the city of Capernaum, we're told. And uh, this Capernaum is where Jesus lived after he left Nazareth. So this wasn't Jesus' hometown, but his family uh, had been there long enough that people were familiar with him. And so people said in, in verse 41, the Jews grumbled because he said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? In other words, Jesus, we, we know you. We know your mama. <laughs> and, and, and we know that you are not from heaven. This is a hard saying. But then Jesus emphasizes again, yes, I am. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I am the manna. In fact, I am better than the manna because your fathers ate the manna in the desert and died. But if you eat me as the bread of life, you will live forever. That's a hard and offensive saying. And as a result, those who were listening to Jesus, even those who had been following Jesus, now are sifted into two groups. Those who believed and were committed to Christ, and those who disbelieved and turned around and left. So as this is occurring, Jesus now turns to his very inner circle the 12 apostles, and Jesus asked them the question, do you want to go to? Do you want to leave too? Now, why would Jesus ask his apostles this question? Why would Jesus ask them this question? we know that Jesus is not wondering what their answer is going to be. Jesus chose these 12 specifically. So this is not like choosing a jury, where you choose uh, 12 people, but you've also got alternate jurors in case someone gets sick or dies or decides they are going to be part of another jury. That's not the way this works. Jesus chose 12 who would go with him. He even chose Judas with full knowledge that he will eventually betray him. But Judas is not going to leave yet because his time has not yet come. Nothing in this entire account indicates Jesus is at all uncertain about who's going to stay and who's going to go. There is no uncertainty in Jesus here. In fact, it says just the opposite. Jesus knew. Verse 64, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it, who it was who would betray him. 
It's not even just that Jesus knew generally some are going to stay and some are going to go. It says he knew who would not believe. He knew who would betray him. And it doesn't just say he knew in that moment, although he did know in that moment. It says he knew from the beginning. Jesus knows who are his because he has chosen them. Jesus knows who are his because he has chosen them. And not chosen them just a few weeks prior when he says, come and follow me. Uh, He has called them then, but he has chosen his own before the foundation of the world for adoption through Christ according to the purpose of his will, says Ephesians chapter 1. And here he puts it in words like this in verse, uh, where is it? Verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If I can put it this way, every believer, every believer is entirely fully secure in Jesus. Their salvation is entirely fully accomplished by Jesus. So they will fully and entirely follow Jesus to the end. Even if there's some little flubs and foibles along the way. So even as the crowd around Jesus is thinning out, and many people are leaving him, the number of true followers of Christ does not decrease, not even by one. There was never any risk that Jesus' ministry would fall apart. There was never any risk that Jesus could say something so hard, so offensive, that everyone would leave before he even gets to the cross. When some people leave from following him here, this is not a loss of true disciples. It is not a failure of Christ, and it is not a threat to Christ's work. Christ will accomplish what he seeks to accomplish. So if Jesus is not really wondering about the apostles' answer to their question, why then does he ask it? If he's not trying to figure out whether they're going to follow or not, why does he say, do you want to go away as well? The details about some of the language here helps us to understand what he means a little more clearly. One uh, commentator, a scholar on these sorts of things, gets into the finer points of the Greek, which I will spare you. But he says at the end this result about Jesus' question. He says, the question is not moody or glum, but it's a challenging, surely you don't want to go away, do you? So the question is asked more for their sake than for his. They need to articulate a response more than he needs to hear it. Jesus' question is for their good, not for his own. 
Surely you don't want to go away, do you? Jesus is leading them even here. He's asking them a leading question. We know that their eternal destiny is not riding on the answer that they happen to give next. If they happen to say, uh, no, or uh, I don't know, that nothing is going to fall apart just because of this. Believers are already secured in Jesus. Jesus is in full control of this situation and of their salvation. All of this is true, and yet, even so, he still asks them a very real question. He still emphasizes to his disciples their need to affirm their commitment of faith. He still emphasizes them their need to voice these words. He still emphasizes their need not only to see the bread of life, but to, to take a bite. Their need to, to say, I do. Yes, Jesus, I am all in. Do you want to go away? No, I'm here. Jesus is asking them this for their own sake. To help them at the fork in the road. Maybe you know what this is like. To be faced with a sort of situation like this where there's a moment of decision where the road seems to split and you have to choose one or the other. You choose follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. The question then is helpful for that. Perhaps for some people, this question was this huge, you know, light bulb moment that, you know, the, you know, something in our brain goes on. Maybe for some, this is the hour that they first believed. Do you want to go away? No, I believe. Or maybe it was at least just some sort of landmark moment that would help solidify their faith. Yes, I realize now that I really have believed. I see that I really have trusted in you. Or maybe for others, this was a much smaller situation, part of a smaller series of steps of faith. So something like, if I can call it this, you know, clues in a treasure hunt that were leading us a little closer to Jesus. Whatever it was, these are good things that Jesus is using to draw his people nearer to him. They are gifts to his people to keep us from growing lukewarm or sitting on the fence or just standing and staring at the fork in the road. And this is the moment then when we get to hear the stunning response that pops out of Peter's mouth in verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To whom shall we go? That's not, we have nothing better to do. It's that there is no one better than you. There is no one better than you, Jesus. We have come to see what is true of you, that you are the Holy One of God, that you are the bread of life from heaven. Where else would we go?
There's one final observation here that bears mentioning from this text. In Jesus' question to them, when he asked them, do you want to go away as well? He's not asking whether they believe or not. He's not asking them, do you believe? That would be a good question. It's certainly woven into this in a way. He's asking them, do you want to go or not? Do you want to walk with me? Or do you want to walk away? But either way, it's really about the walking. It's really about making our legs go one way or another. So this is more than just about faith or belief, although that is certainly part of it. But this is faith in practice about how we actually follow Jesus. So, and I'll, I'll close with this. In our house, if I want to go to the store, usually don't, but if I have to go to the store, let's say, and, and I ask our girls if they want to come, the response from them is almost always lots of squealing, lots of excitement, uh, yes, yes, I, I come, but my response then right after this is the same almost every time, okay, good, put on your shoes. Go get your shoes so I can help you put on your shoes. <laughs> you want to go, put on your shoes. This level of excitement, of willingness, of squealing even, that certainly matters. It's a good thing. But it must be accompanied by actually putting on the shoes. It is fascinating when it comes to our girls in the store that it never really matters where I'm actually going. You know, I could ask, do you want to go? And they never respond with, go where? <laughs> it, it, it doesn't matter. The response is just, yes. Anywhere you're going, we want to go. Do you want to go? Yes, I do. Okay. Put your shoes on. Jesus here does not ask his followers if they want to go to a particular place. But he does ask them if they want to go with him. Do you want to go with me wherever I go? Will you follow? If I take you through the valley of the shadow of death, will you follow? If I ask you to take up your cross and follow me, will you follow? Do you want to go with me or do you want to go away as well? And if we say, yes, Lord, I want to go, he says, good. Now put on your shoes. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for leading us in this particular way and for showing us who you are. We know that there is no one else that we can go to. You have the very words of eternal life and you are the very Holy One of God, the very bread of life. Thank you for showing this to us. Now help us to follow. 
to believe, but also to put on our shoes to live lives that follow after you. Thank you for feeding us of this true bread from heaven. You are good, and we are grateful. And we give you all our thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.